This program is brought to you by Emory University. Actually, let's be clear that a brief review of American history makes it plain that anti-immigration is just as ingrained in the American experience as immigration. In other words, the, the vexed debate uh, about immigration and immigrants uh, that we are experiencing uh, today that has gained even more prominence with the current economic downturn is anything but new. Take this comment. Few of the children in the country learn English. The signs in our streets have inscriptions in both languages. Unless the stream of the importation could be turned, they will soon so outnumber us that the advantages we have will not be able to preserve our language. And even our government will become precarious." Unquote. Now, friends, these sentiments are not taken from any current newspaper. They reflect the considered opinion of Benjamin Franklin, a founding father and prominent abolitionist. Franklin was writing in the 1750s. The language he was referring to was German. The focus of his displeasure were the wave of new German immigrants arriving in Pennsylvania, whom he viewed as, quote, the most stupid of their nation, unquote. But far more interesting, in my view, given the pivotal role that immigration has always played in the Christian life of this country, is the fact that strong hostility to new immigrants is sometimes expressed by notable Christian leaders who, in some cases, were also strongly committed to the mission of the church. My favorite example is Josiah Strong. In the 1880s, Josiah Strong, Reverend Josiah Strong, was General Secretary of the Evangelical Alliance for the United States, a coalition of Protestant missionary groups. Strong identified immigration as one of the great perils which confronted the American nation and threatened its very survival. By then, America was the chief country of immigration, absorbing over one million European migrants a year on average. Strong's attitude to the overwhelmingly European but predominantly Roman Catholic immigrants of the day was decidedly uncomplimentary and condemning. Let's follow his thoughts. He wrote, the typical immigrant is a European peasant whose horizon has been narrow, whose moral and religious training has been meager or false, and whose ideas of life are low. Not a few belong to the pauper and criminal classes. Immigration not only furnishes the greater proportion of our criminals, it is also seriously affecting the morals of the native population. It is disease and not health which is contagious. Many American citizens are not Americanized. Certain quarters of many of the cities are in language, customs, and costumes essentially foreign. Many colonies have brought up lands and so set themselves apart from Americanizing influences. We may well ask, and with special reference to the West, places like California, 
whether this in-sweeping immigration is to foreignize us or we are to Americanize it. Well, you know, uh, if Strong were still alive a century later, he would find many echoes of his convictions within American society, but the immigration landscape he would encounter would surely give him a heart attack. <laughs> Not because the volume or numbers of immigrants are necessarily different. Actually, they're comparable, even though, as you can see, the numbers are much greater. But because the racial composition and immense cultural diversity of present immigration represents a radical development that would have been unimaginable and deeply objectionable to the good citizens of late 19th and early 20th century America. But once again, we must agree beyond any dispute that the history of America is a history of migration and immigrants. And I would suggest that it is perhaps clearer today than at any other time previously that not only is immigration central to the life and character of the American nation, it is also crucial to its future. Perhaps most importantly, its religious future. Now, historical uh, periodization is not an exact science but let me suggest what I would consider the four major immigrant episodes that have covered the course of American history that would give us a, a foundation for examining current realities. Each of these episodes, bear in mind, was marked by at least three distinctive elements. Each episode or each wave represented a massive and sustained influx of new immigrants whose ethnic and cultural composition distinguished them from the mainstream population. Each wave fomented new and lasting transformations of the nation's social, political, and economic life. Thirdly, each wave profoundly impacted the religious landscape and bolstered the missionary movement. So, the first wave dates to the initial immigration of Northwest Europeans who populated the colonies of the New World. An estimated one million immigrants came to America during the colonial period and many more after. Friends, can we agree that the tendency to portray this first wave as colonialists or settlers and to reserve the term immigrant for those who came after them is disingenuous? Can we agree that they were immigrants? Thank you. These immigrants fundamentally shaped the nation's core institutions, religious life, and cultural outlook. Their descendants have exercised disproportionate power in American history and continue to dominate the highest positions in American society. Although this dominance is slowly eroding, uh, most evidently in the last decade or so. For instance, uh, the US Supreme Court, long a bastion of white Protestants, presently consists of six Catholics and three Jews. And then, of course, we presently have a black president, however inconvenient that might be 
for some. And let's not forget that the last five mayors of Atlanta have been African-American. But this was a fundamental wave that shaped the nation in ways that are still manifest today. The second wave overlapped with the first, but was absolutely distinct from it. Uh, it involved the first migration of thousands of African slaves. By 1800, America had one of the largest communities of Africans anywhere in the world outside Africa. When the first census was taken in 1790, they constituted 19% of the population. And of course, they were more concentrated in some parts of the country than in others. And again, as some of you probably know already, Atlanta was one of those areas of concentration. Uh, by 1870, just about 30 years or so after it was founded, the black population of Atlanta comprised 46% of the total. Throughout the country, uh, they would continue to grow. By the mid-20th century, the American population in the US represented almost a third of the black population throughout the Western Hemisphere. Friends, despite enslavement, racial oppression, and political exclusion, American blacks have also, like the previous wave, impacted American society and culture in profound ways, most prominently in the areas of music, art, science, religion, uh, black spirituals, the emergence of American Pentecostalism, and so on. And not to mention the fact that the experience, actions, and aspirations of blacks have also contributed to some of the most profound historic developments in the life of this country, notably the Great Migration and the Civil Rights Movement. To the third wave. From 1900 to 1920, about 14 million men, women, and children poured into the US. In fact, by the time the wave uh, began to ebb, over 27 million immigrants, mainly from Southern and Eastern Europe, arrived in this country. That number included 1.5 million Jews fleeing anti-Semitic violence in Europe, especially Russia, but also included a sizable group of Chinese and Japanese uh, who arrived on the West Coast as laborers. You may recall that it is this third wave that uh, attracted the condemnation of leading Christian figures like Josiah Strong. Yet this new group also made a vital contribution to the growth of America's urban industrial economy. First and foremost, America's lofty Protestant ethos would be forever transformed by the massive infusion of Catholics and Jews. Its culture and urban landscape would take on a new vibrant diversity as multi-ethnic immigrant communities and churches settled throughout its vast mass. Its way of life and livelihoods would be profoundly enriched by this new immeasurable profusion of customs, conventions, and styles. Words like kindergarten will become part of the lexicon. Notable immigrants include Albert Einstein, Graham Bell, Joseph Pulitzer, Helena Rubinstein. But let's not forget, it included Asian immigrants 
who also contributed to the nation's industrial growth. Even though they found themselves at the bottom of the social pile and had to contend with extreme hardships. Since citizenship was confined to whites, they were marginalized and economy exploited. In fact, interesting to me is the fact that Chinese immigrants in this country uh, bore the brunt of public hostility and discrimination at precisely the same time when increasing numbers of American missionaries were flocking to China. This immigrant wave would be abruptly curtailed in the 1920s by restrictive immigration acts. <coughs> we shall talk about the fourth wave. <laughs> the fourth wave is for those who don't fall asleep. <laughs> we'll come to this later. Friends, the connection between immigration and the American church is vital and irrevocable. Like its peoples, the earliest American churches of any denomination or tradition trace their origins to immigrant or migrant congregations. In fact, you could argue that this migrant factor is one of the most, if not the most important single reason for the dynamism and religious innovation that has long characterized American Christianity. In every period, immigrant congregations serve to facilitate their assimilation into American life, provided the chief means by which the immigrants themselves impact the mainstream society. <coughs> the point here is that massive and recurrent Christian immigration has historically had a profound transformative impact on the American nation. Immigrant churches inevitably revitalize America's religious life, inevitably reinforce its Christian ethos, and most importantly, uh, immigrant churches renew missionary consciousness within churches and have boosted the foreign missionary movement. To recognize this is to go against the grain of Western scholarly thinking and consensus, especially in mission studies and Christian history. For well over a century, the dominant hermeneutic of mission stories has held that Christianity's global spread was principally a Western project, a function of European or American initiatives. In this understanding, the Western missionary movement took the form of a one-directional movement from a fixed geographical center. Reverend Josiah Strong, for instance, proclaimed Anglo-Saxons, quote, the great missionary race, unquote. He was convinced that among them were to be found most of the spiritual Christianity in the world, on whom depended the evangelization of the whole world. The main problem is that this perspective, <coughs> excuse me, leaves no room for the possibility that missionary action could flow in the reverse direction. Excuse me. In fact, 
Men like Josiah Strong, who represented the dominant evangelical voice of their day, viewed the influx of culturally different, ethnically distinct, predominantly Roman Catholic immigrants as a threat to America's Christian culture and its manifest destiny. As some of you know, Miriam Ferguson, a contemporary of Strong and the first female governor of Texas, reportedly declared, I quote, if English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for Texas school children, unquote. It is not my intention to belittle the complex problems which extensive immigration, immigrant influx poses for society in every area. But I want to make sure we understand the importance of immigration for our Christian life and for missionary consciousness. Immigrant communities are bastions of fervent religiosity. They are communities of commitment. They bear faithful witness to the claims of the gospel, typically among the most vulnerable communities in the, in the nation. They always contribute to the religious instruction and training of the next generation of Americans. They always exemplify the church's missionary function and typically give tremendous boost to America's overseas or foreign missionary movement. Let me illustrate this with a few highlights from the three waves we've just looked at. In the first wave, the spectacular rise of Methodism in America is a major case in point. In truth, Methodist growth was exemplified by many different factors, including its revivalist fervor, itinerant ministries, democratic church structures, a goodly supply of unpaid clergy. Much remains the same. But early Methodism in America was an immigrant faith that targeted migrant communities on the frontier and inner cities. It was a faith that utilized a vast network of circuit riders and itinerants. Methodism thrived most among the migrant frontier population, a population typically neglected by the older, more settled, civilized, homegrown denominations. It's a familiar story. And of course, I assume you know that by 1850, Methodism had become the largest single denomination in the country with a third of all church members. What about the second wave? Almost from the start, the black church movement demonstrated strong missionary commitment or consciousness. America's first overseas missionary was not Adoniram Judson, as is often claimed was actually the former slave and Baptist minister, Reverend George Lyle. 
Lyle established the first black Baptist congregations and churches in Georgia. In 1783, some 10 years before William Carey sailed for India, some 20 years before Judson arrived in Burma, Lyle settled in Kingston, Jamaica as a missionary. His earnest, emotional preaching and lively worship services attracted a strong following, even though he was frequently arrested by the colonial authorities for violating the terms of his preaching license. By the time the first European missionary arrived in Jamaica, he had a church of more than 500 members, including quite a few whites and former Methodists. But black Christians in this country focused their missionary energy mainly on Africa. In 1792, the arrival in Sierra Leone of 1,100 black Christians from Nova Scotia marked the establishment of the first black church in modern Africa. And some like Lamin Sane contend that their efforts to evangelize recaptured African slaves arguably signified the beginning of the modern missionary movement. In part due to limited funding, the total number of African Americans who went out officially as missionaries remained small. But as many as 12,000 blacks emigrated to Africa, and many of them were inspired by visions of missionary outreach. The third wave. Now, the impact of this mass immigration of predominantly Roman Catholic uh, 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 migrants on American religious life was simply profound. Roman Catholicism would grow rapidly. Up to the First World War, more than a third of Roman Catholic congregations in this country still held services in a language other than English. And by the mid-20th century, they had become the largest single religious group in the country. This influx also coincided with an extraordinary explosion in the number of American missionary agencies. In 1900, there were only 56 American missionary societies. In the next 60 years, over 200 new missionary agencies will be founded. Now, you could argue that some of this had something to do with you know, the emergence of Pentecostalism and its own uh, natural dynamism. But I will have you know that the number of Roman Catholic overseas missionaries would explode from a mere handful in 1918 to 9,600 by 1968. Again, an influx that significantly bolstered missionary outreach. One other point before we turn to the fourth wave. For some, this brief overview of the link between migration and religious expansion of missionary consciousness uh, in the history of this nation may suggest yet another example of American exceptionalism. Well, not quite. Let me hasten to make the point that throughout the history of Christianity, people who move have played the most vital role in the spread of the faith. In fact, this dynamic is strongly rooted in the biblical tradition. To such, to such an extent that I, as, an, as a historian, find the need for a biblical lens 
absolutely compelling for any thorough examination or exploration of the role of migration in the history of Christianity. Again, let me make the case briefly. Friends, even the most cursory examination of scriptures confirm that the spirit of migration permeates the biblical record and defines biblical religion. The biblical account begins and ends with migration from the expulsion of Adam and Eve to the magnificent vision afforded to the Apostle John who is exiled on the island of Patmos. The image and fate of the foreigner or stranger of what it means to live as an alien in a strange land is a recurrent and dominant biblical theme. Not only do we encounter every major form of migration in the biblical account, it is also important to recognize that the biblical story and message would be meaningless without migration and mobility. The men and women whose lives and actions provide the clearest imprint of Yahweh's calling and purpose were migrants, foreigners, and outsiders. This motif is central to the identity and existence of ancient Israel. The law incorporated specific instructions about the treatment of the foreigner and the alien. <clears throat> yes, in some instances, migration and displacement exposed biblical migrants to alien influences that produced apostasy. But ultimately, the biblical narrative makes plain that the disempowerment and vulnerabilities intrinsic to the migrant experience often strengthened religious commitment and provide this, provided the subtext for uh, spiritual transformation. In other words, for all its predicaments and perils, the experience of migration typically contributes to religious vitality and missionary consciousness. As American historian Timothy Smith observed, migration was a theologizing experience. But it's not simply that the act of migration intensifies religiosity. The scriptures portray a strong link between migrant movement and divine action. The God of Israel is a God of mission because he makes himself known in the ordinary, mundane circumstances of human existence, of which migration is a prominent fact. I would argue that this connection between migration and divine action finds vital expression in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, who is born to migrant parents, whose life and experiences include the travel of a refugee, the pain of uprootedness, and the hostility which greets the unwelcome stranger, not to mention the isolation of homelessness. In his own words, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Indeed, it seems to me that the incarnation itself should be considered a veritable act of migration or relocation. For by taking on human form, 
the God of the universe went into voluntary exile, so to speak. And of course, in the New Testament, the link between migration and mission is not only emblematic of the life of the church, it was also decisive for its survival. You will recall that the very name Christian emerges out of migrant movement and the preaching of the gospel by refugees. Early Christianity was largely a religion of immigrants, and this was integral to its vitality and growth. A well-known second century uh, depiction of Christians captured this dimension distinctly. The, the letter to Diognetus <coughs> declares, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like that of transients. They take their full part as citizens, but that also submit to anything and everything as if they were aliens. For them, any foreign country is a motherland, and any motherland is a foreign country. The church in Rome provides a major example of the centrality of migration within early Christianity. We all know Rome was a great cosmopolitan city. But not many of us recognize that in Rome, or in ancient Rome, the distinction between foreigner and non-foreigner was conspicuous and absolutely important. Actually, Roman citizens viewed foreigners with utmost disdain and distrust and regarded them as a source of contamination. Here is how one historian summarized the anti-immigrant sentiments in Rome. The stupidity of the Phrygians, the empty verbosity of the Persians, the criminal hypocrisy and maleficent arts of the Egyptians, the perfidy and superstition of the Africans, the selfishness and rapacity of the Jews, and the failings of all other races represented among the alien population of Rome were the object of biting satires which helped to keep alive Roman dislike and contempt. Well, this deep-seated anti-immigrant attitude is significant when you consider that the first few centuries, in the first few centuries of its existence, the Christian community in Rome mainly comprised immigrants. How would you have liked to be a member of the ancient church? Then as now, being a member of a church comprising merely foreigners and strangers represented major social challenges. Imagine what it was like for members of this church to read Paul's instruction in Romans 13 to submit to all governing authorities. Bear in mind that minorities and immigrants view political authorities, shall we say, somewhat differently from regular citizens. They live with the consciousness that a single decree could dramatically alter their existence and prospects. Yet over time, the church in Rome would be of paramount importance for the establishment of Christianity in the Roman Empire and beyond. 
I'll leave it there. But it's clear that migration and diverse forms of mobility remain critical for the spread of Christianity throughout its history. Let me put it this way. Few would question the claim that the missionary is a form of migrant. But friends, it is of even greater import to affirm that every Christian migrant is a potential missionary. So, anti-immigrant sentiments among Christians typically reflects our inattentiveness to the biblical record and a poor reading of history. Sincere Christians who espouse a wholly negative view of immigration, while at the same time insisting on a strong commitment to the mission of the church, end up with theological dissonance. American Christianity is a product of immigration. America's strong missionary ethos reflects the vibrant religiosity and dynamism of recurrent cycle of immigrants. So as we turn our attention to present realities, it is important to affirm that we're addressing an old story, one that is quintessentially American, but also quintessentially Christian. This brings us to the first wave. Well, the latest wave is one that occupies our attention in various ways all of the time. By 2009, according to UN estimates, there were 214 million international migrants, people living outside their country of birth in the world. This, as you can see from the slide, represents a dramatic escalation of migrant movement. If there were one country, that country would be the fifth largest in the world. But most important, UN data further indicates that up to 60% of international migrants are to be found in wealthy, developed countries. And America is the most important example of this fact. For by the end of the last century, America had resumed its status as the chief destination of the world's international migrants. By 2009, home to 42 million migrants, one in five of the world's population, America has more international migrants than the next four countries combined. Uh, you can read the rest for yourself. Um, uh, some things are important. Uh, currently, uh, uh, immigrants uh, account for roughly 13% of the uh, American population, but that number will continue to increase. And uh, if I may whisper in your ear, uh, even if the walls are erected, the border is shut down, and uh, the dreams of certain sections of the population comes true, that nobody else can be let in, it will not significantly change the trajectory, which is that uh, the proportion 
of the foreign population would continue to grow, and in another half a century or so, non-Hispanic whites will be a minority. We're just sharing as, as friends. Most important for this discussion, though, is the fact that not only are the, is this immigrant very recent, 90% uh, of the new immigrants arrived after 1960, but that the overwhelming majority are of non-European stock and come from over 150 countries. In assessing this wave, we should also bear in mind that it correlates in a very significant way with the reshaping of global Christianity. The heartlands of the global Christianity are now in the South. With more than 60% of the Christian population living outside the Western world, Christianity is now a non-Western religion. That too is a recent transformation. More Christians in the world speak Spanish than any other language. Okay, so this is a, a, a new reality. And now, the migrant flow is predominantly from those heartlands of the faith in the non-Western world. In much the same way as in a previous era, predominantly migrant flows were from Europe, and Europe was the heartland of the faith. So, the flow of, migra of international migration continues to correlate with missionary action and dynamism. What I want you to think about is that among the swelling tide of migrant workers, uh, refugees, students, labor migrants, political and economic uh, asylees, and so on, are numerous Christians, each one a missionary in some sense. What are some of the implications for the American church? Let me close with these last four points. It is a striking historical coincidence that this phenomenal influx of Christian migrants in the U.S. from the 1960s coincides with a general decline within American Christianity. Yet, the significance of Christian migrants is typically overlooked in the heated public debate about immigration. Unlike almost any other country in the West, America's immigrants are predominantly Christian. <coughs> Research indicates that it is as much as two-thirds of the new immigrants that claim to be Christian. And it's not only in research, the impact on uh, the, the Christian composition of the nation is already evident. Latinos now account for a third of all Catholics uh, in this country. And this uh, uh, Latino or Hispanic seg segment will continue to grow for the foreseeable future. Church attendance among immigrant groups like Hispanics is higher than the national average. 
Of course, some of you may know that across all <coughs> Protestant groups, so it's not only Roman Catholics, Protestant groups, whether mainline or evangelical, new congregations or what are often called ethnic churches form the cutting edge of growth. Okay, there's just a few samples uh, uh, on the on the on the slide. Uh, the last one refers to uh, the most well-known, the Korean um, uh, growth. And there you see that the ethnic Korean congregations are the fastest growing segment within uh, PCUSA. That's no news. Uh, by 2008, the number of Korean congregations had risen to 3,500, uh, 1,300 in Southern California alone. We may have a conversation later about the claims that this growth has plateaued. So. Uh, I will have those discussions. Okay? So this is the first point about the implications. The second has to do with what, what some scholars describe as the de-Europeanization of American Christianity. <coughs> the sheer diversity of the new immigrants uh, is what is contributing to this uh, outcome, to this transformation of the Christian landscape. Scholars know that the new immigrants are expressing their Christianity in languages and customs and uh, practices, even church formation, that often make them barely recognizable uh, uh, for, for uh, 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 other uh, American uh, Christians. They form distinctive uh, um, uh, uh, communities. And, and uh, 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 while, in fact, being here means that processes of adaptation uh, will make them not only different from homegrown, but also somewhat different from the churches uh, that they were or left uh, behind. The point is that they reflect a new form and representation uh, of Christianity that simply multiplies uh, the alternatives or the kinds uh, of expressions. In other words, immigrant church life is a form of mission which takes on uh, mainly the model of being born anew in a new environment rather than simple, straightforward expansion. Third, evangelistic diversity. Uh, you do have uh, a professor of world evangelism in-house, so I have to be careful not to expose myself. But Let's start by acknowledging that it is true to say the primary role of the immigrant congregation is that it functions as a site of cultural preservation and ethnic identification. Korean immigrants in the US have formed churches at a faster rate than almost anybody else. But Korean churches tend to be monocultural. Although second generation uh, church plans uh, uh, obviously begin uh, to change that. But the fact remains, and I get this all the time wherever I, I, I speak or present, that immigrant churches function as sites of preservation. But we must also recognize, equally importantly, they function as sites of religious conversion and renewal training grounds for the next generation of Americans. But here's the point I want you to bear in mind. Even if they only evangelize 
their own community, members of their own cultural groups, even if that's all they do, they are making a significant contribution to the growth of Christianity in this nation. Remember, they are winning to the faith the same people whom American missionary agencies expend enormous amounts of resources and effort to reach in those countries they came from. So the, the, the very vitality of these congregations is part of the narrative of American Christianity and its dynamism. Also remember that these immigrant congregations represent the face of Christianity to a goodly proportion of the nation's uh, disadvantaged and marginalized populations. Often, the groups exposed to their ministries and outreach are typically beyond the reach of homegrown churches. We, what we cannot deny is that throughout the US today, missionary vitality is most prominent among new immigrants. Roughly one in three Hispanics reports that they share their faith at least once a week. According to research done by one of my students, 48% of non-Anglo Mennonites share their faith with a non-Christian every month versus 18% of Anglo Mennonites who share their faith once a month. We can uh, multiply the examples. But then there's another area uh, we must note in passing quickly, that these congregations, uh, or many of these congregations, are more attuned to religious plurality than the average American Christian. The new wave of immigration has multiplied uh, the religious, has contributed to the religious diversity of American society. But this is a new experience for the vast majority of American Christians. For many of these migrants, however, that's been part of their existence as long as they've been Christians. In other words, they may have a model of living peaceably with other faiths in a way that many homegrown Christians might struggle. And they may also have an understanding of what it means to represent Christ in a context where he's not the only name proclaimed. Finally, American congregations are also changing. Congregations in this country are marked by a greater degree of international commitment of global awareness than ever before. What now, in his research, found that nearly two-thirds of active church members in the US have traveled abroad or lived in another country. More than one in four have friends or relatives that live outside the US. It's a new reality within our, our congregations. The presence of immigrant churches is part of this mix. A new, profound transnationalism 
and global awareness. And their presence invites us to think differently about our ministries, about what it means to, be, to have partnership. There's always something strange in my mind about a church that would expend tens of thousands of dollars to send a group to a distant country when people from that same country have a church down the road with whom they're not in communication or any interaction. This is only a simple way of saying that uh, the presence of these groups uh, mean that a sense of pastoral training and preparedness might need to change. Our understanding of what it means to be missional or to be engaged in missions needs uh, something of a rethink. I'm aware that I may have simplified the picture somewhat. There are many major challenges uh, that present themselves to in, within this new reality. And certainly from the immigrant point of view, uh, uh, life as an immigrant church is anything but simple. Fruitful connections and genuine partnerships between immigrant churches and, and homegrown churches, even within the same denomination, tend to be rare. But there's never been a time like this. The implications for our theological training and education are really profound. At least let us remind ourselves, as someone put it, that it is not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but a God of mission that has a church in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Huntsils. Um, I'm sure you've got a lot of questions, theological, historical, sociological, cultural. Um, uh, I'm going to help Dr. Huntsils field questions. So if you could just um, just introduce yourself, uh, faculty, students, wherever you are, and um, uh, I'll give you the mic. Do you have data on the percentage of immigrants that go to European countries as compared to the percentage of Europeans who come to North America? The, let me see. The percentage of immigrants from where? From anywhere. That go to European countries uh -huh. uh, versus the percentage of immigrants that come to the U.S.? Oh, oh that, that's... But plenty of data uh, covering that. But your question hints at the fact that we, let's be aware that where, whereas with regards to Europe, the majority of immigrants are Muslim. With regards to the U.S., the majority of immigrants are Christian. Okay. But at the same time, even in the European experience, a significant proportion are also Christian. The problem is that we have a kind of a media approach and fixation with the other. So uh, a, a, a survey of the EU, I believe in 2001, found that about 49% of immigrants were Christian, mainly Protestant. So, and the other thing about the European, about the European situation is that you're dealing with a, a number of different countries, some small, some big, and, and the immigrant reality does change significantly from one country 
to the other. So in Germany and France, the, the percentage of the immigrant population that's Muslim is more significant than, say, in Britain. So, so, that, so the European context is just a little bit more complex in terms of making assertions and analysis. But much of what we're saying about the presence of immigrant congregations representing uh, cutting edge of growth, vitality, and dynamism in comparison to many of the homegrown uh, denominations would, would also be true. And one last thing, in Europe, the, the challenges we have about forging partnerships and interactions between immigrant churches and homegrown denominations in some countries is much tougher, especially Germany. It's, it's just you know, the understanding of Christianity and the Christian tradition uh, and that heritage is really entrenched and fixed. So anything that looks different, and trust me, when African immigrants arrive there, they look different. The way of doing church is different. So. That's Brooks Hollowfield. <laughs> ah. Should have warned me. <laughs> you, I, I actually uh, I found your, um, your argument about the, the role of uh, uh, congregations, uh, religious congregations, within American history very, very useful. And you may like to know that even Muslim immigrants copy the same congregational uh, um, um, element within the immigrant experience. Yes, I mean, they meet on Sundays, they use the word like Sunday school, and they talk about born-again Muslims and so on and so forth. But, all right. Yes, sir. Thank you. I'm Colin. I'm a second-year MDiv student. Thank you for visiting or migrating to us here. There you go. Um, my question you began to hint at, um, think, I'm thinking about partnerships with churches of immigrant communities and um, I don't know what you'd say, local or mainline communities here. And we've all experienced maybe even being or worshiping at a church where in the evening or even concurrently there's a separate church worshiping in that same space and building, yet they're two completely separate communities uh, with very little interaction and partnership. What I heard you saying was a, a partnership between two separate entities, um, you know, whether pastoral or you know, at a resource level, some kind of partnership and, and teamwork and mission. But do you see any you know, future, it seems like you're hinting at this, for actual mixed congregations with, with mixed leadership between uh, indigenous pastors or you know, migrant um, clergy? And if so, uh, you know, how do we go about doing that? Or is, that, is there a danger, I, I can see a danger of well, we're here, we're Americans, you know, we were, uh, you know, you're immigrants, we'll kind of impose our cultural um, expressions on you, and you can see the barriers of language and worship, uh, just, how, is that even possible, or are those cultural identity markers like language going to uh, cause such a rift that we can't have that kind of dual leadership? You just asked about three questions. <laughs> But, but no, uh, um, um, first, my basic concern is that we need to begin to introduce these insights into theological education. Um, <clears throat> uh, theological education is excellent. I mean, the MDiv, for instance, uh, remains a very vital uh, qualification in some ways, although um, I think revisions are necessary. But 
but I think that in some ways we can end up preparing students for a world that no longer exists. So, so my first concern is beginning to introduce, because many students leave uh, without this sort of awareness. The first time they begin to wrestle with it is when they're in that church and this other congregation is meeting uh, in the afternoon and so on and so forth. Uh, that's one. Uh, secondly, I, I like the fact that you, you already recognize that this, there's no easy way forward. I mean, the distinctions, the differences, the, the, the divergences, even the areas of conflict are real and, and formidable. Okay? And, and recognizing that is important. Um, but let me tell you something from the immigrant side. There is nothing immigrants want love more than that acceptance, that, uh, that hand reaching out to welcome them in some way, and uh, uh, any effort to make room for them that allows them to be who they are, but also allows them to begin to explore and engage the wider reality of the society in which they now live, and in which their children will grow. Um, but they don't find that. In fact, I would have you know that Based on my own research, I know for a fact that many immigrant churches emerge because uh, somebody, some family was rejected or didn't find acceptance in, in a homegrown church. The, the most immigrants' instinct is to find a church that they would be a part of that's, that's American. And, and many times that doesn't happen. Uh, and so the last thing I would say to your question is, uh, I almost stopped you and said, define future. Um, there's a long road ahead of us. But I think uh, American Christianity finds itself in the midst of a very interesting experiment that has global significance. Because these communities retain very strong ties with uh, 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 homeland at the same time as they are social actors in this environment and, and are able to influence back and forth in ways that are way beyond what even the, the, the older missionary movement could have anticipated. Um, I would say, if I was talking to a pastor, I would say, why not think about the smallest steps you can make towards that other congregation? They're very different. I mean, if it's African, they worship for four hours, and they think, ah, okay, yeah, we'll make do with that for this Sunday. Um, and and they, they approach your worship and so on. But they are eager to be uh, in conversation. You will find congregations where they really prefer to be left alone, and, 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 and worship in their own language. Uh, but that's not true for most, that many worship in English and look forward to uh, those kinds of collaborations. Thank you for a very rich presentation um, that stimulates all kinds of things. I think you'll find a very receptive audience here for it. I wanted to ask about your assertion of um, uh, the divine um, expressing itself in migration. Mm -hmm. So God at work through mm -hmm. migration. Mm -hmm. And um, connect that with the um, immigrant population in the United States. If two thirds are Christian, uh, and I'm willing to uh, accept that as a data point, that means a third are not. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that third, I assume, are Muslims. And certainly, America has become a very vibrant place for the expression of Buddhism in the world. Yeah. Um, 
is it possible that God is at work in the um, spread of Islam to the United States uh, and the evangelizing efforts of Islamic communities in the United States uh, to grow in the same way that an immigrant community from the Hispanic world might grow? And if a Christian, that is, some of the Christian migrant communities would evangelize themselves or others, um, and if, if God can be seen at work in that, um, what would it offer to the homegrown Christians? You've already hinted that we could learn about more peaceable relations, uh, but I'm also interested in the larger question, is God doing a new thing in America by sending us more migrants who are Muslim. You followed my arguments more closely than I had hoped. <laughs> and I think that's an excellent question. I, I, uh, in fact, that's, that's precisely the point, I would say, uh, wh why a biblical lens is so critical. Uh, uh, that, that the people of God, the nation of Israel, were a migrant, uh, I mean, the migrant element was so predominant and it, it has uh, significance also in the fact that they lived among other nations who did not recognize Yahweh as, as God. And that, that the identity as uh, 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 those been, having been given the promise was linked to how they treated those others uh, as well. And, and, and that's, 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 that's uh, uh, an element that we must come back to and, and begin to reflect on very critically as, as, a, as a church. And I think you're absolutely right. I, I just believe that the, the American experience as it is now and has long been uh, simply provides a context for some very unique experiments and some very unique um, um, uh, encounters that allow us to see God moving in interesting and exciting ways. But the question is, as a church, are we there? I mean, are we ready? Is that how we look at things? I mean, I have to say, I don't know about you, if, when, I, when, I, when I look at Protestant Christians, in particular, and how they view immigration, much of this is lost. It's, it's not part of the conversation. It's not part of the, the instinct. Uh, and and, and that's, that's, a, that's a big travesty. And, and there's something there that goes against what it means to take uh, the word seriously. Uh, and I say Protestants because the most profound and interesting interactions and engagements uh, on the Christian side really come from Roman Catholics and come from Roman Catholic thinkers and, and, and theologians. And, and, and again, it's not simply about the reflection. You, your question hinted about the kinds of action that are possible. Uh, what does it mean to live with a Muslim neighbor? What does it mean to have your children go to school where the best friends may likely be uh, from a Buddhist background or Hindu background, or their teachers maybe. What does that mean? What does that mean for the church? And, and what does that mean for the church's uh, re uh, rethinking its missionary mandate? Uh, it's, it's, but for now, I think we've lost the plot. And, and, and to get back to that is going to take some serious work uh, by institutions like Canada School of Theology. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Hansels. My yes, name sir. is Michelle Odeemi. I'm from Nigeria. Uh, what do you make of the 
culturalist argument used, and I'm now I'm referencing Jean-Francois Bayard, who wrote a book called The Illusion of Cultural Identity, mm -hmm. as a new logic of the separate but equal within the Christian discursive contribution. Um, I <coughs> have fundamental problems with the argument. Um, I am persuaded, both from a biblical perspective and my uh, uh, historical study, that cultural identity and cultural distinction is actually a divine idea. Um, you know, Paul, Paul uh, 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 makes the observation that in Acts 17, that the divine de determined the places and when we would live, and that the, the, the distinctions of our existence uh, also provide us with the foundation for reaching out and experiencing him. That our experience of God is always culturally mediated. And what that means is that as a Nigerian, you do not need to become an Australian to encounter God fully in Christ. Not only that, that your particular heritage furnishes all the material requirements for you to experience God as fully as anybody else. And one more uh, point in that argument. That was what the Jews in the New Testament times struggled with the most. Because the, 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 the instinct within Judaism was that it was this particular ethnic cultural group. And being part of that group was the way you would experience the divine fully. But the work of God in Christ and the church that emerged out of that changes that, well, not so much changed it as uh, introduced in a very concrete way its universal application. So, but the, the, the point, the, the, that, that author is onto something. Our problem is that the charge we're given as a church to so model this in a way that reflects the divine view of the Father, we are all equal before him. We're all standing the same distance from eternity. It's something we failed miserably at as a church. Because we, 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 we succumb always to our sinful humanity that insists that some are better than others, some must be given priority than others. Uh, the example of Josiah Strong is just one among many. But it's not only Westerners, although it's more predominant among Westerners. There are other groups that have imbibed of the same milk. So I often have to remind my students that God does not have a favorite culture. David Jenkins, Daisy Machado and other Hispanic uh, theologians have chronicled the often confusing 
complicity of mainline denominations with the state and the state's interests regarding immigration. Oftentimes those denominations um, will send mixed messages about the church and state. Um, and they're often denominations that want a clear separation of church and state out of their own self-interests. So I'm wondering if you could help us think about a coherent public theology that the church could advocate around immigration in this country. You would recall that when Dr. McDougall introduced me, she said, uh, uh, history of Christianity and globalization. Did you say anything about theology? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fascinating question, but <clears throat> it's best put to the theologians, honestly. Um, and I, but again, I think you're, you're hinting at something, which is to say, I, again, I'm just giving my own opinion. Unfortunately, in the American experience, <laughs> the church tends to draw, take its cues from the ideological um, um, traditions and heritage in which it is vested itself, uh, and not so much from a biblical-centered uh, uh, understanding of its task. And I'm not saying it should be one or the other, but I'm saying that uh, often I find very little of these efforts being informed by serious biblical reflection. Of, of what the, the church is called to do. So how does one interpret separation of church and state? That's a formulaic expression. Historically has meant a number of different things. You would be on good grounds if you argue that there is no such thing. And that even using it as a starting point sets, off us, on, sets us on a false course because of the church's mandate to the whole of society, that, em that embraces the whole of society. But then, of course, it has some very specific applications that, um, uh, you know, that in the public discourse, uh, we need to guard against. And in this case, simply because that separation of church and state <clears throat> has become a leitmotif of a very aggressive secularist uh, uh, agenda. It means that the church has to think about what it means to be in a situation where it no longer has a privileged position. And, and, and so on and so forth. But for me to articulate a new public theology, apart from the meanderings that I've just uttered, will be a disservice to you and to everybody else. But that's a question that I would hope is being asked here in, 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 in uh, the, the appropriate courses as well, because it demands an answer, I would say. Well, as I go over there, I'll say, as a student of Jürgen Moltmann, that's, I heard of biblical, of public uh, theology underneath uh, your talk. Inadvertently. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Jonathan Strom. I teach uh, church history here. Yes, sir. Uh, one of the questions I have for you is you've posed a very broad, almost a universal ideal of an immigrant mm -hmm. um, that cuts across not only time but also different 
ways of being an immigrant, from refugees to economic migrants. There are all kinds of reasons. I'm just curious in your research, are there ways that you can talk about immigrants and their relationship to religion that varies depending on why that they are immigrating? Or do you really just want to work on the very macro level of the fact of immigration or migration? And that would then lead to questions about levels of does it matter migration within a continent versus intercontinent, even migration within a country, and, and so on. Just these very categories that are dependent on the notion of migration and immigration. The answer is yes. Um, yes, I, I prefer to work off uh, what you are describing as, as a more uh, universal construct. And that's because uh, not only is migration a universal historical fact that people move, move for a variety of complex reasons and, and so on and so forth, uh, our efforts at typology uh, to distinguish refugee, asylum seeker, force, and so on, uh, often doesn't do any justice to the complexity of the, of the migrant reality. Um, for instance, I actually reject uh, the distinction between migrants as those who choose to move and refugees as those who are forced to move. Uh, it is unhelpful, uh, it's misleading, and uh, it ignores the fact that uh, there's compulsion in almost every form of migration you can think of. You, you, you wouldn't move, typically if you don't have to, except for adventurous seekers and so on. Uh, the, the migrants, there is a, there's an element of compulsion involved in every form of migration. Every form. It's, it's, it's never really absent. As a matter of fact, the real question you want to ask is, why, do the others, why did the others not move? That's a more fruitful question, because in, in, in almost any case where you have uh, uh, any significant movement, out movement of migrations, whether it is across, again, the borders as far as national, international, that's a whole different discussion. Migrants in China move greater distances than other migrants in other contexts who go through three countries. So, and, and, and in an African uh, uh, situation, migrants might move across international borders, but actually find themselves with a group that speaks the same language as them, shares everything uh, like, they, like, like they are, so that they're more at home when they move to that group across the border than they were in the country they left. So there are, there are all kinds of complexities and, and issues. But the point is, in terms of, uh, again, just broadly describing migrants, people who move uh, uh, and live in another place for an extended period of time, uh, that, for me, that is a useful enough category. If we get into all the, uh, you know, the, the, the caveats and nuances of migration, it becomes almost impossible. It's interesting that the, the, the Greek words that are used in both Old and New Testament actually cover these varieties of movements. Even uh, the legal residents, same word. Uh, alien, foreigner, somebody who uh, uh, moves away from home, uh, lives in a strange land, uh, it, it covers those, those, the, those varieties of, of categories. And when it comes to categories, it's even worse. You might, you might move voluntarily as a student and then find that you can't go back because your country implodes. So are you a voluntary 
migrant then? And, and uh, this, this, the status of a migrant can change within you know, the space of six months. So again, uh, simply understanding this category, uh, as I've done, you're right, it's kind of a little bit simplistic. But I find it a more helpful way to, to capture a reality that almost everybody can understand. Nineteen seventy, nineteen ninety-seven, when he was on the faculty there, and I was there on sabbatical, and spent uh, a semester. A very different teaching. Zimbabwe than what it is today. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. At one point, we thought we might retire there. It was so ideal. <laughs> well, I I could sympathize. Fortunately, we didn't. <laughs> uh, but I appreciate the fact that you've introduced the biblical basis for your argument. Mm -hmm. And that is that God was a nomad God who went with the nomad Hebrews mm -hmm. as they traveled through the wilderness. And they retained that loyalty to the one who had stuck with them through thick and thin, mm -hmm. and therefore resisted the temptations to, uh, to make use of the local gods where they went, who of course could guarantee crops, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, a very important economic consideration. Um, so, that, so that this emphasis upon the nomad god it seems to me is written into our basic theological understanding of our biblical roots. Um, my own experience in Italy was with the congregations from Africa and came to Italy and then formed congregations there largely through the influence of missionaries from this country, mm -hmm. uh, a, a strange sort of interna internationalization of the immigrant experience. And <clears throat> they, they then have expanded very rapidly and are attracting, uh, uh, because they come from African countries that speak English, they have already uh, a, a community uh, that it has reinforced their distinctions, but they are also reaching out to other Italians, and especially those who want to practice their English, and, uh, and attend their services. And so you're getting a new kind of missionary effort in, in this uh, complex of circumstances. Yes, thank you. Oh, yes. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's that just, uh, you know, uh, that validates the, the, the phenomenon um, of, of movement. And, uh, but it's a missionary movement that's informal. It's unstructured. It's often clandestine. 
uh, it's more difficult to map. It frustrates American scholarly sensibilities because it's harder to count and, and to reduce to statistics. Uh, it's messy, but uh, much of history is messy um, and, and, and very much like that. So, yeah. yeah. Arun Jones, I teach world evangelism. Um, I appreciate the warning. <laughs> uh, Jehu, I wonder if uh, you know of studies that look at the second wave of Africans, uh, the second wave of migration that you talked about, Africans that came here uh, mostly uh, uh, as slaves, uh, that see that the religious impact of that as a de-Europeanization of American Christianity, that their impact has, I wonder if it's seen that way. And if it is, um, is that, can we look to that, uh, the effect of the second wave on American Christianity as a way of sort of dreaming about or thinking about the way the de-Europeanization de will continue in the future um, because of the post-65 wave of immigration? Yeah, that's interesting. You just reminded me. Mark Knoll uh, makes that point that the mass conversions among <coughs> Uh, 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 Africans in this country and the emergence and growth of the black church brought an end to evangelicalism as a white religion in this country. He makes that point. I'm trying to remember which of his many books uh, that's in, and I can, I can look at. Yeah, so he, he did make, he did make that, 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 that point has been made uh, uh, before. And, um, and also, if you look at, perhaps more obviously, if you look at American Pentecostalism, how much that is rooted in, in, in black uh, religiosity and spirituality, and what a strong impulse and current that forms, you have uh, uh, pretty much a similar uh, uh, argument to make. That, that Again, as I said earlier, uh, like all the waves, that wave too would have a pro profound uh, impact on the religious landscape and America's uh, uh, religious growth and identity. And, and you're simply uh, reinforcing that. Uh, the, the, the thing, though, about this fourth wave is that it's not simply just one group. Then you have these varieties of, of cultures and, and, and distinct ethnic groups forming churches. And so the de-Europeanization involved in this is a lot more comprehensive than it is. So how do you push back against that? Uh, it's not simply one group growing very rapidly. It's all these groups. And not only that, these groups must also increasingly contend with the different Christianities that they represent and, and what that means for being American. So, and, you know, and that's something else that you could, you could talk about. Emmanuel Lati. Aha, yes, sir. Um, and by question, I guess, uh, extends this um, last point that... Okay. Um, uh, you're making, and it has to do with particular forms of, call it African Christianities, uh, present um, around, certainly in the influx that you call the second uh, uh, immigration, but also very much uh, in the, the newer uh, forms, which has also resulted in not only diverse Christianities, mm -hmm. but also different um, African 
religious traditions being uh, present and practiced here in, 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 in America and in, well, in the Americas. Mm -hmm. So they are what we would describe as the African independent churches mm -hmm. uh, present, the, and then the, the traditions of Yoruba religion and other religious traditions, so that the, the, the picture of the religious landscape is, is, is pretty uh, diverse and pretty, pretty mixed. Uh, I wondered whether you had any comments to make about that uh, in terms of the, the landscape of religion here in America. Yeah, it, it is true that um, the, the recent African immigrants bring with them other religious traditions uh, that are not necessarily Christian. But that is a very small segment of, of, the, of the movement. Um, most African immigrants in this country are Christian. Uh, in fact, the next major segment is likely to be Islam. Although, interestingly enough, that uh, African Muslims in this country are more likely to embrace Christianity while they're here than the other way around. So, so, so you do have, you do have these, these, uh, different, these different streams. Um, but yes, I mean, uh, as far as the, the other uh, African religious traditions, uh, there isn't the kind of research, unfortunately, that would allow us to uh, make any you know, uh, sensible, informed conclusions as to how they're faring, uh, what kinds of impact they're having. Uh, the anecdotal evidence suggests that they're, they're much more about cultural retention and practice than about a missional consciousness. That it's, it's really within Christianity you find that you know, it's all part of the DNA of the religion, so to speak, uh, a consciousness about, about uh, outreach. So African immigrant congregations, even when they only attack other immigrants, still retain that sense of we want to reach people other than ourselves. Uh, you would not necessarily find that with other religious traditions, except, of course, they do attract African-Americans uh, who are keen on uh, expressing these areas of the, of the African heritage. Thank you for lecture. Uh, my name is Won Chershin, a second year MDiv student, and I ap appreciate your lecture specifically as an international student from South Korea. Mm -hmm. And uh, my question is that recently Georgia implemented the original style immigrant law. I think. Implemented a what? Uh, Arizona oh. style. Oh, Arizona style. Yeah. Arizona style, yeah. Uh, I think it intends to regulate illegal immigrants, but it, in reality, it significantly hampered to migrants from other countries, especially the low-income country. So can we understand this kind of law as a limitation of possibility of God's work through immigration, migration, something like that? First of all, I wasn't aware that Georgia has Gone the way of all flesh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Alabama too. Sorry? Alabama and Georgia. 
Oh, really? Yes. Nobody said anything to me. You, you invited me. <laughs> 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 Under false pretenses. <laughs> well, you know, um, remember I said anti-immigration is as old as immigration. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's really not new in and of itself. Uh, I'm, I don't think the, the legislators are doing this in any way that's informed by the kinds of arguments or discussions uh, we, we, we are, are having. Um, and I, I suspect that, as is typically the case, there are strong economic considerations behind that, that sort of push. Although even there, the economic arguments tend to be unsound. Uh, if, if you really want to assess immigrants and contribution to economic life, whether they drain more than they, than they, than they contribute. Uh, but we shouldn't be surprised, and this is the environment in which uh, the church must do ministry, uh, must um, um, bear witness uh, to, the, to, the, to the claims of the gospel or to what it means to be called of God. So, uh, from my point of view, <clears throat> Uh, it really doesn't change much because even if there is no legislation, you would find the same attitudes prevalent uh, 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 throughout the society anyway. Legislation typically simply gives um, you know, physical expression to sentiments that are already deep-rooted. So, so the, work will, uh, the work will not necessarily change. Um, and uh, and, and we, we should... I don't, I don't see... <coughs> These trends, from a legislative, political point of view, changing anytime soon. But they make the work of the church even more urgent and, and certainly uh, more critical. But I have a question. Uh, in, in the case of Georgia, is there any particular group that would be a target of this? Because uh, typically there's a group that the legislation has in mind, and it's a fairly visible. So which group would this be? So Georgia is attracted significant numbers of Hispanics? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Agriculture. Agriculture. Ah. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Okay. I must look into this. <laughs> and, uh, all right. Okay. As I go up, the next question, I'm going to take the presider's <coughs> privilege and just add a postscript. Um, this morning I heard on NPR uh, about, uh, in rapid fire, two um, comments about what I call theology of providence related to immigration uh, legislation. So I just think it's extremely interesting, and um, even today in your own talk, yeah. you talked yeah. of really appeal to providence arguments. So clearly this is going on. Yes, it is. Yeah. But remember, these migrants who are now on the receiving end of this legislation, many of them are Christians. Many of them are our brothers and sisters, members of the same household uh, of faith. And to the extent that we're ignorant about what it means for them, uh, we're also failing in terms of Christian fellowship. Uh, so I don't want to just sell this as a question of just ministry and outreach, uh, because that can actually also be oppressive when you target them just to um, see whether they can join your church or whether they can come to faith. It's, a much, it's much broader than that, I think, uh, the call on the church. Sorry. My name is... Rodney, Oliver Rodney. I am a citizen of Jamaica, and I'm only passing through here on a brief sabbatical. I also okay. want to thank you for what I found to be a very informative and inspiring presentation. I heard you made mention of mission in reverse. I would have loved for you to have developed a bit more on that, 
However, as, a, as you continue to present and as the conversations continued, my mind seemed to be operating in reverse to the topic that you have presented on. And I want to ask you if it is a fact that there has been in, recent, in the recent decade or so an explosion of or renewal, rebirth of uh, the evangelical fervor in Africa, on the African continent. If there are things that we in the West need to stop and ask ourselves questions about relative to what might be causing such type of uh, evangelical zeal, and we need maybe to separate ourselves from or learn some things from in, in the West. What might be accounting for that? What, did, what, what might some of the things that are accounting for such type of... But if it's a fact, first of all, I'm not just sure if my reading is correct. And I stand to be correct. Well, the first thing I would want to say that I did not use the phrase mission in reverse. I never use it. And it's pertinent to your question uh, because I think it's unhelpful to view this new missionary context as simply a reverse direction. Remember, I'm critical of the idea that if the earlier movement was one directional anyway. As if uh, foreign missionaries went to another place and did everything, established a church, grew the church. That never happened. Uh, uh, and even though that movement was also part of a wider migration movement. Um, so it, it's, not, it's not really a reverse. In fact, if anything is reverse, it's really migrator, global migratory flows that has reversed and shaping a new uh, era of uh, Christian missionary engagement. Uh, but also not reverse because the Western missionary movement is alive and well and kicking. It's, it's not, you know, you know, kind of gone into retirement. It's, 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 a, it's a billion dollar industry. And, and uh, much of it now takes the form of short term missions, which don't even get me started. Um, <laughs> let's just say that missions is never short term. But, but the, 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 so, so in terms of your question, what we have to learn from each other, again, you, you're hitting at something I, 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 I really uh, uh, feel strongly about, that we no longer need to go to Africa, if you're in the US, to learn about our other African evangelical expressions, predilections, and so on. That, Trust me, there are many, there are many Africans right here, and also uh, from the from the, the Caribbean, uh, where believe it or not, Pentecostalism has also had a similar impact. Uh, uh, Pentecostalism has pushed back against Rastafarianism in Jamaica. Uh, it's it's <laughs> it's one some of their leading artists like Junior Tucker and Colin Davis and so on and so forth. So 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 yes, I mean so. The point is being here, uh, being part of the church here, uh, uh, being identified with American Christianity, just provides such fertile ground and, and, and unimaginable opportunities for exploring these kinds of questions, interactions, and engagement. Uh, we're not there yet. As a matter of fact, for the most part, we're not even aware uh, that this is something that can enrich the church immeasurably. Uh, um, so. I would just say, you know, I mean, the opportunity to learn uh, from each other and contribute globally. Uh, I don't think any other nation on the planet uh, has the same 
gifts and, and possibilities as you would find in the U.S. I think we've got time for one final question. Um, Wesley. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I, I feel like uh, I will repeat the question that one of our students asked before. Um, but I think it is important that when we talk about immigrants, we are talking about invisibility. Mm -hmm. Particularly in this state here, because this is what I'm experiencing here. Um, Hispanics are invisible, not only because of documents, they are Ill illegal, but also because they have not been accepted in any, uh, or not any, but in many Christian communities. Right now, I'm part of this dynamic of Brazilians coming into our church, but the church is rejecting. The model integration of integration is something that is not accepted by the church. Do we have historical inspiration or a model to change the reality? More than is necessary. And, and I, I, <clears throat> I hear the pain in your voice. Uh, more than is necessary. That's why I gave the example of the Roman church. If, if you read um, uh, First and Second Peter, you, you find the same thing. And <clears throat> he's addressing his, the, the addresses as aliens and foreigners. And um, we've made the mistake of spiritualizing that, that he's saying, oh, they're, they're aliens or sojourners on earth waiting to get to, he's not. He's using words that explain that they're actually uh, migrants living in a foreign context. And when you understand that and you begin to read the injunctions he's giving them, about what it means to deal with being a stranger and an alien. He's saying in 2 Peter 1.17, your neighbors might uh, um, uh, disown you as strangers, but they must never have cause to label you as evildoers. Um, um, so yes, and there are other historians in the room, History affords us all kinds of uh, models and examples. The problem, though, is that the history we have had the most fascination with is the history of Western Christendom, which furnishes rather different models of engagement with the other. So if you were to do a course that paid close attention to Eastern Christianity, it's a very different lessons to be drawn. Uh, uh, among, among Syrian Christians, the, the merchant movement was so important for the life of the church and the faith that uh, the word for migrant was the same word as merchant. I mean, the, that church lived uh, on the Silk Roads, plural, and its identity was invested in that commercial network. And, and, and uh, we read about uh, Christian groups uh, within the Persian Empire that were minority groups, persecuted groups. 
and had to live and give expression to their faith in a context where they were not the dominant religion, not the officially recognized religion. And what did that mean? Those stories have very different lessons to offer us. So yes, I mean, to answer your question, both, the, both in biblical and historical terms, we have more than is necessary to explore these issues. Um, the invisibility, the, the loss of status uh, involved in, in, um, in migration, and, and uh, the, 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 uh, the disabilities and vulnerabilities uh, that is part of that experience, the daily indignities the migrant lives with. Yes, we have more than enough. Jay, when you get that many number of questions, um, it's a sign of how inspiring and full and rich your lecture was. Um, mm. I think you all join me in thanking. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.